Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is going to be Philippians 3:17 to 4:1. It's found on page 1787 of the Pew Bibles. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Thanks, Adassa. Good morning. You all join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day that you've made. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people as your people looking to you. Uh, now, Lord, I confess from the outset that what I have is insufficient to the need, that my words are not wise enough, that my mind is not clear enough or powerful enough. But Lord, what I have, I offer to you. Take my fish and my loaves, multiply them to the need. Take my jars and fill them with oil. Look out on this people that you've called for yourself uh, and pastor them on good things this morning. Above all, Lord, help us to look up to you and to see you in all your supremacy and give you the glory that you deserve. Pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's talk about Christian politics. So, in a church of our size, I am sure that we all came into the room today with some mixed feelings about the election that just took place this week. And I'm sure that just about every one of us, no matter where we fall in the political spectrum, has those mixed feelings in ourselves. Uh, if you were happy about the way the gubernatorial election ended, you may have been a little disappointed in the way the senatorial election ended, and vice versa. But man, if you're like me, you're just happy that it's over, to be honest. I mean, one, my wife will tell you, one of the things that I do almost every morning is I come downstairs and I turn on like a YouTube worship playlist and just listen to that while, while I'm eating breakfast. And for, it feels like three years now, even though I've only lived in Madison for 15 months, it feels like for three years, every single ad in between worship songs has been an attack ad from one candidate against another candidate. And it was never the same candidate back to back. So at least YouTube is confused about who I vote for. But one of the, one of the big and interesting philosophical questions that came out of this last election cycle boils down to this. How closely should Christianity and governmental power be tied together in America? And we live in a polarized 
political climate, yes. But the, the answers to that question actually seemed to kind of fall along a spectrum, and it was an interesting spectrum. On the one hand, you had some people on both sides of the like, Republican-Democrat divide, blue and red, saying, no, not at all. There shouldn't be any alliance between Christianity and political power. On the other hand, you had some folks in the middle take, staking out a position that said something like, well, where Christians are the majority in a region, then Christian ideas and morality should prevail. I mean, not to infringe on minority rights, but it's a representative democracy, so where there's a bunch of Christians, generally speaking, you might expect to see Christian ideas predominate. And then to the other side of the spectrum, you found a position like this. Some, some folks would say, well, completely. America's a Christian nation, and it should be officially a Christian nation. So, a spectrum of answers to the same question. I'm not really interested in answering that question particularly this morning, but I do want it forefront in our minds because this is not just an American question. This is a question that Christians have to regularly ask themselves throughout time, throughout geographical space, throughout political system, basically between Jesus and the present day. How does our faith relate to government in the countries where we live? This goes back to the earliest church. Some of you may have heard the name Constantine before. Constantine was a emperor in the, uh, in the Roman, uh, Roman world in about the late third century to early fourth century, so from kind of the years 280 to 337. This is the guy who convened the Council of Nicaea that led Christian theologians and pastors to explain for the first time with perfect clarity what they meant when they said that God was three in one Holy Trinity. Now, how did Constantine, a Roman emperor, come to play such an important role in Christian history? So what happened is that Constantine was not born a Roman emperor. There was, as often was the case in the Roman world, this massive war and succession struggle following the death of an emperor. And so Constantine was one of the kind of sort of contenders to assume the throne. And at one point, he's about to go into battle, and this is the way the sort of the official history reads. He was going into a battle at a place called the Milvian Bridge. It's about the year 311. And he, he has a vision, and in this vision, he sees a cross, and then the words come to him, says, in this sign, conquer. Now, one of the things I take from this story is that it's pretty good to always take what God says very seriously, but not always literally. Um, what Constantine does is he takes that sign and he paints it on the shields of his soldiers and he goes and he beats up on his enemy at the Milvian Bridge and he becomes the, essentially, emperor of the united Roman world. A year later, he issues something called the Edict of Milan, which really favors Christianity. And within about a decade, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. So think about this. Between the apostles, when you have a Roman emperor like Nero, who is brutally murdering Christians, to a couple centuries later, where Nero's successor, Constantine, is making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, on the one hand, you might call that a great success story for Christianity. But the thing about Constantine is that even after his conversion, he seems to have had a thing for uh, cults of sun gods. You can find it in his imperial iconography. It's the way he would describe himself on Roman coins. Uh, so whatever was up with his faith, it wasn't the sort of faith that the church fathers at Nicaea would have always recognized as Trinitarian. Anyway, the big question for us today is, is Constantine's model a good one or not? 
should political power bow the knee to Christ, retain its own governmental structures, but still say, at some sense, that Christianity is the official religion of whatever country it is that we're thinking about at the time. This isn't just an academic question for us today. It's a question that churches around the world are wrestling with in America, in Russia, in Brazil, in Poland, in Italy, and so on. So Philippians 3, I suggest, is a text that we all need to take very seriously wherever we find ourselves on the globe today. So this is what we're gonna do. I'm just gonna first walk through the text of Philippians 3. There's one or two kind of subtle technical points that are really easy to miss. I just wanna pull those out of the text, give us a sense for how Paul is making one consistent point in these verses. I'm gonna show you then three big points that are gonna take up the majority of our time in the sermon today. I want us to see basically that as far as Paul's concerned, our native country, our true home, is in heaven where Christ is. Point two, I want us to see that as far as Paul is concerned, Jesus is the king and ruler of that real country. And then third, I want us to see that our duty to our king is to live like he's already the Lord even while we're waiting for him to come back and perfect his kingdom on the earth. Let's start in verse 17. Imitate Paul. This is a point that's come up a few times in the course of Philippians. Paul's presented himself and other ministers like him, folks like Timothy, folks like Epaphroditus, as living examples of Christ-likeness. And think back to Philippians chapter two. It's really kind of the center of gravity for the whole whole book of Philippians. This picture of Jesus is the one who sets aside the powers and the prerogatives of divinity, who comes down, who takes on the nature of a slave and submits himself to death, even death on a cross, not because it's good for him, but because we needed him to do it, because we needed him to come and deliver us. So then Paul himself, as a minister of the gospel, as a minister of Jesus Christ, as someone who bears witness to the coming of Jesus' kingdom says, for him too, it would be better for him if he were to depart and be with Christ. But he remains even bound in prison in incredibly uncomfortable circumstances, robbed of all freedom because it's necessary, because it's good for the churches under his care. Okay, but that also means we have to be careful uh, to imitate Paul and not imitate Christ's enemies. Christ's enemies are those who, Paul says, set their minds on earthly things. Now, this is, this is a very subtle point that you wouldn't see if you're just reading in English. The verb that Paul uses there when he says set their minds on is a technical philosophical term from the ancient world. Uh, to set your mind on something is translating the, the Greek word phronane. And for those of you who've ever had to study ancient philosophy first, I'm sorry. But second, phronane and the noun form phronesis describes a certain virtue that philosophers would dedicate their entire lives to achieving. It's basically what you could call practical wisdom. And really, I would summarize it as moral muscle memory. The idea of phronesis is that when you find yourself in a sticky moral situation and you don't know exactly what to do, right? You ever been in one of those where you know you have to make a decision, but it's really hard to weigh the options? Phronesis is the quality that you've developed over years of training that helps you intuitively recognize the right decision and put it into action without even really having to think about it too hard. It's it's the sort of thing that you and I have, I hope, every time we see a stop sign. Right? You don't have to really sit there and think and evaluate what kind of sign that is too hard. 
through practice, you've come to the point where you recognize what a stop sign is and your foot's already pumping the brakes before you've even like calculated the word stop sign in your head, right? That's phronesis. So when Paul says that his opponent's mind is set on earthly things, he's saying that the horizons of their moral imaginations have been so conditioned by this world, what they can see with their eyes, touch with their hands, taste with their mouths, that that's really all they can conceive of. And that makes them, in the end, enemies of the cross of Christ. And that brings us to probably what's the most important bit of this text. Paul says that our citizenship is not earthly. Our citizenship, our Greek polituma, is in heaven. And that's the basic distinction between him and these other folks that he says we ought to watch out for. The implication is that we need to have our phronesis, our practical wisdom, our moral muscle memory calibrated not just to the world that we can see and smell and feel and digest. We need to have our moral muscle memory calibrated to heaven. And that brings us to this word that, unfortunately, I've given you the Greek transliteration of, polituma. It's a tough one. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word occurs. And uh, depending on what translation you're reading, you're going to get some of what this word means, but not necessarily all of it. How many of you either still read or grew up reading the King James? Okay, how many of you are just reading the NIV like we did this morning? So if you read the NIV like we did here, the NIV translates this word as citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's kind of an evocative notion. Like, the the country to which we belong as citizens isn't just here on the earth, it's also in heaven. But if you were reading the King James, it would say this, our conversation is in heaven. Our conversation? What does that mean? So basically, the translators of the King James came to this verse, and they kind of punted on translating that word because it's so rare. So what they did is they gave you basically the Latin word, that the, like the standard Western Latin version of this text read for thousands of years, conversatio. Now, the thing about conversatio in Latin is that it doesn't mean conversation. What it means is our political group, our community, the body of people to which we belong. And for that reason, I would say, uh, I'm not sure this is a translation that works everywhere, but I think it'll make sense today. I would be kind of tra- uh, tempted to translate this word polituma today as tribe. Our tribe is in heaven. The people to whom we really belong, the people uh, whose practices we share, the people whose moral insights we agree with, the people whose way of life we seek to belong to and imitate, that's the thing that's in heaven. It's true belonging and true expression of our nature and identity and our hope for human flourishing. That's what's in heaven waiting for us. And this brings me to a second point here uh, from, from verse 21. We are all waiting for a savior who has the power that he needs to bring everything under his control. Now, it's interesting that Paul doesn't actually call Jesus savior, Greek soter, all that many times in his letters. Very rare. He does it once in Ephesians, a couple times in Titus. But in this context, I think one of the reasons he does it is for a reason that you and I would recognize. If I were, if I were to start using phrases around you like commander-in-chief, or head of the commonwealth, you would know that I'm talking about someone who holds a really high political position, right? 
In antiquity, soter is one of those words. So there was a Greek general and king who conquered most of the ancient world named Alexander the Great. He and all the people in his line after him used the word soter to describe themselves as kings and as liberators of the people that they had basically conquered. And following Alexander the Great in his kingdom, emperors of the Roman Empire, especially when they invaded the East where everybody kind of spoke Greek, still used that word soter to describe themselves as kings. So I think one of the reasons that Paul stops here and makes a point of actually calling Jesus soter for us is because he's letting us know that when you're waiting for King Jesus, you are not just waiting for somebody who liberates you from sin, you are not just waiting for someone who will resurrect your body from the dead. You are actually also waiting for your true king. Like, in the same way that if I said that our commander-in-chief is coming, and then I told you that his name was Jesus, and not any of the sitting U.S. presidents throughout history, you would know that I was making a claim about Jesus' military and political standing. That's what Paul is doing here. So then finally... In 3.17 and 4.1, just notice the way that Paul brackets this whole thing. He begins this passage by telling you to imitate him. You have to live in a certain way. And then he concludes this passage with another appeal to encourage you to live in a certain way. And the way that you ought to live in one word is stand. Stand firm. Don't be shaken. Don't be moved. Stand. I'm going to come back to that at the end. So for the rest of the morning, I just want to walk through these three big points. I want to talk about what our home country is and isn't. I want to talk about who our Savior and our King is, and I want to talk about how we should live as citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of a real kingdom. We are waiting for a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We are waiting for a ruler and a master who will sit on the throne of David forever. Um, I try not to talk about my years that I spent in Australia every single time that I preach. Some of you, I'm sure, are getting sick of this, but I'm going to go back to it because there's just one example from my time in Australia that I think really pulls out what Paul is getting at in Philippians. Uh, when, when I had just been in Australia about a year, in 2018, there was a big election cycle, much like the one we just lived through. And there, they also sort of have a soft two-party system. You've got the Labor Party, and you've got the Liberal Party, and most people line up behind one or the other, but it's nowhere near as polarized as it is here. And in 2018, uh, you, as an academic working in a university, I knew that who it would be better for me personally if they won, but I wasn't a citizen. I couldn't vote. So I'm watching all these Labor Party versus Liberal Party people have these actually kind of reasonable and intelligent conversations with each other, and it just seemed really strange. But <laughs> I knew that I had some stuff at stake, but I know I didn't have quite as much at stake as they did. It's basically, the way it works out is, you know, if you're an academic, you want one party to win. If you're a coal miner, you want the other party to win, and nobody gets too bent out of shape about it because nobody likes their politicians anyways. But, as an American citizen watching this foreign election cycle, even while I'm living there, I was aware of the limitations of what could actually be decided in this Australian election. Because I hadn't been in Australia very long, but I had learned a few things. One of the things that I had learned is that really, the Aussie economy was dominated by the American economy. What happened on the American stock market was far more important for what was gonna happen with the value of Australian currency than whatever happened in that election. I also knew that the Aussie military 
was dependent upon the American military. There was a big deal at this time where America signed, uh, signed on to provide Australia with a new submarine fleet. The Aussies couldn't produce their own submarines. The only movies I'd seen in the theater in Australia also were not Australian cinema, whatever that would mean. Like, I went to see Black Panther. Hollywood is still Hollywood, even in Australia. And by the way, I was working in a university. When I think about like the 40 or so professors that I worked alongside, almost all of us got our PhDs in America or in Great Britain. Even while I was living in Australia, there was another country that was exercising so much more influence in where I was living than the country where I actually had my feet on the ground. And that is the political experience that Paul is narrating for you here in Philippians 3.20. Our tribe, our country is in heaven. And the power of the kingdom of heaven is visible here and now on the earth, even though the earth and heaven are not yet one and the same thing. So what he's doing, what Paul is giving us, is essentially what I would call exilic logic for understanding our, uh, our position in po the political world. Think about what 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says. When Peter is speaking to his church, I'm, I'm just going to read a couple verses. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's the key word I want to draw out. Exiles. If you've read your Bible, exile is a word that should pull you back through almost the whole of Scripture. Exile means living in a host culture that is not your own, without ever totally losing touch of your home culture. One great passage I'd encourage you all to go back and read, I mean, it's, it's the passage that I'm willing to bet is already on the refrigerators for 30% of you. It's Jeremiah 29. You know that verse, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord? I mean, that verse comes from the prophet Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon. And what Jeremiah basically says is, yes, God has good plans for you. It's awesome news, but for now, you're in Babylon, not Jerusalem, so don't expect that you're coming back too quickly, but in the meantime, rest assured, God's watching out for you. So, seek the welfare of the city where you are. Try to do good to the people around you. But when you read that passage in context, it's clear that Jeremiah is not saying, get super cozy in Babylon. Remember the prophet Daniel He's reading the book of Jeremiah. He's searching, looking for the time where God has revealed to Daniel when the exiles are going to come back from Babylon to the land of promise. He sees that there's 70 years decreed for the return of Israel from exile. Even in exile, seeking the welfare of the city as a high elected official, Daniel's heart longs for Jerusalem. And here's another warning about living in Babylon. When the people of God are living in exile, we'll just call it Babylon right now for shorthand, Babylon will always try to use God's people for its own advantage. Uh, one of the sadder and more poignant psalms in all the Bible is Psalm 137. This is the one that begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. And why are they weeping? And their captors come to them and say, sing to us one of the songs of Jerusalem. Sing to us one of the songs of Jerusalem. Sing us one of the songs of your God. Now, this is what Babylon does with the people of Israel. They say, you know what, you're here now. Sing us your songs. The fact that you're here, uh, it makes Babylon better. It makes Babylon special that we can integrate you into our people and find a place for you here. 
Babylon will always tell us that they love our food, that they love our music, that they love our movies, that they love our accents and our home culture. They'll think it's kind of a cool niche thing that makes them a little bit better. But what Babylon can't do is recognize that we serve a king and a savior who will come and require that Babylon bow down to him one day. Remember the promise of Revelation 11:15, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. And that means that for right now, the kingdom of this world is, yes, still Babylon, but when Christ returns, the whole world will become Jerusalem. And that brings me to point two, that Jesus is our real king and the king of the whole world. Um, If you follow the art world at all, which I don't really do, but something happened over the last 25 years in the art world that I just thought was so interesting that even I read about it. Um, There's there's this really important kind of underground artist known just by the name Banksy. If you've ever heard of Banksy, or if you know anything about art, you know that the name Banksy doesn't sound like a name that you would associate with a great artist right off the bat. But he's kind of an interesting guy. He's a graffiti artist. He would run around in all these capital cities around the world, painting stencils of all these crazy shapes and creations, and eventually people realized that there was one guy doing this, and that it was actually kind of brilliant stuff. And so his name and his legend started to grow, but nobody knew his true identity, almost sort of like this art superhero. I I mean, I I don't even know what to call him. But in 2003, he did something that just blew my mind. Um, In 2003, he snuck into what I think is probably the most important art museum in the United Kingdom, the Tate Gallery. He put on a disguise, trench coat, and he just walked in carrying a big package under his arm. And it was something he had painted. And he just snuck into the Tate Gallery, unboxed it, hung it on the wall, and walked out. And so can you imagine like being the guard, the curator of that part of the museum? You're just walking through one day and you're looking over your shoulder, it's like, yep, Monet. Ah, yep, Picasso, yep, Rembrandt, yep. And you just kind of catch up short in your step, and you're like, what is that? (laughs) What is that graffiti doing here? Um, One of the greatest living artists in the world at, at that moment, you realize, has snuck into your workplace, left his own stuff there, and you had no idea that it happened. It's like that with Jesus, the king of the world. When he comes in the incarnation, all the rulers and authorities, even the ones who think they're actually waiting for the Messiah, like the the chief priests and the scribes, they don't recognize him. I mean, this is one of the great messages of Mark's gospel, is that from start to finish, pretty much nobody figures out who Jesus is, even though he's running around doing all the stuff that he's doing. The Romans, Pilate, the scribes, they're all confused. There's only a couple people who sort of get it, and one of them is a blind guy named Bartimaeus. Jesus is on the road toward Jerusalem on his way to being crucified and there's this blind guy by the side of the road named Bartimaeus crying out what? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he calls him son of David, what he's saying is you're the Messiah, you're David's heir, you're the one we've all been waiting for. So Jesus heals him and then he goes up to the city where he's killed. Jesus is a real king. Bartimaeus got it right. Just think through some of the prophecies that we're going to celebrate in the upcoming Advent and Christmas season. Uh, Isaiah 11.10, this gets quoted all throughout the New Testament. The root of Jesse will come, uh, sorry, that in him all the nations will hope. 
Yeah, the root of Jesse, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So what does that mean, that the Gentiles will hope in Jesus? It means that he is, like Bartimaeus says, David's heir and the political hope of the world. The Gentiles here, the nations, are going to recognize that all of their systems are set up and aren't worth actually putting their ultimate hope in, but they're going to see something in David's heir and Jesse's offspring in Jesus that calls them to ultimate political hope. This is why God promised to David that David would never lack an heir to sit on his throne, because that heir is Jesus. Or here's another one, a good Christmas prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is not a metaphor. Jesus is the governmental and political hope of all the world. Jesus seems to have recognized this about himself. When you look at, for example, John chapter 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate's been told that this guy is a little weird, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, basically, yes, but. He says, on the one hand, yes, I'm a king. I'm the king of the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world, not of this cosmos, Why? Because his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, right? Now, the fact that Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly kingdom does not also mean that it isn't going to become an earthly kingdom, too, when he returns in glory to receive the kingdom for which he was born and appointed by his Father. And Jesus knows it well because after his resurrection, right before giving the disciples the Great Commission about the importance of making disciples in all the world, he says this, All power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. After the resurrection, Jesus already has the power and authority to rule as king. He hasn't started exercising that power yet. He's leaving a time for repentance, for the whole world to recognize his authority, to come to him, to submit to discipleship. And this is why discipleship is important. You should basically think about all of your own calls to be Jesus' disciples, his students, as being called to study for, like, the citizenship exam in the kingdom of heaven by submitting yourself to Jesus' rule and his way and trying to exemplify his life at all times and all places, you are admitting that your Lord, Jesus, has all the power and all authority, has the right to command us and to exemplify us how we ought to live, and that we are going to give it our very best effort to try and be more like him. So in a sense, Jesus is to government what Banksy is to the art world. The the world goes about organizing, destroying, refining, reorganizing its political philosophies in the same way that curators arrange an art exhibition. But it doesn't recognize when the greatest living artist, arguably, in the world at that point, sneaks into their gallery and hangs up his own painting there and blows up all their logic. Jesus is a real king. So what should we do? Stand firm. Wait until the return of the king. Um, Does the idea of standing firm just sound a little too passive to you? Wouldn't you rather have preferred that Jesus said something like, like, fix bayonets and charge the enemy positions and take the kingdom here and now? So, with that in mind, this is my question. Would you say that the Union Army at the Battle of Gettysburg on Little Round Top, embedded with the 20th Maine Regiment, was being a little too passive when they held the line, prevented the collapse of the Union Army, and turned the entire tide of the Civil War. 
If the 20th Maine, on top of Little Round Top, surrenders its position, the whole army is going to get flanked, and from there it's pretty much a straight shot for the Southern Army to like, capture Washington, D.C. That's basically the position that the church is in when Jesus says to them, through the Apostle Paul, stand fast, hold firm. Standing firm is going to take everything that we have. But the good news is that in Christ Jesus, we're seated in heavenly places. We have the high ground. And a defensive victory can still be a decisive, crushing victory that ultimately turns the tide. So I would encourage you, think like the first church of Little Round Top. Hold on to the end, and then when Christ returns, charge down the hill with him. To do that, we have to be willing to imitate Paul and to live in a heavenly way, giving up our own privileges and our own prerogatives in obedience to the Father's will, considering other people as more important than we are, because that's the real law of the kingdom of heaven. Think about it this way. Uh, We just lived through an election. A lot of folks were voted into or out of office in the last week, right? Now, for the folks who were elected into office, are they already exercising their power? Are they already legislating? No, because in our Constitution, there's an intentional gap between election day and inauguration day. Right now, we are all of us living in that political gap between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, which is basically like election day, and his return to receive the kingdom for his own, which is basically like inauguration day. And this is why it's important to stand firm, because in the meantime, there's still, there's still someone in office. Like, this is, this is what we should learn from the temptation of Jesus. In the wilderness, when Satan comes to him and says, all the kingdoms of the world have been given over to me, and I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. He's not lying. He has that kingdom, that power, that authority right now. And he is not committed to the peaceful transfer of power. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. So, Paul says, stand firm. Think back to the sermon that Manohar preached a few months ago uh, on Ephesians chapter 6 and on spiritual warfare. I'd encourage you all to go back and look at it again. But just remember that as far as as far as our political reality is concerned, we're kind of in the same place that Israel was in one of these times of civil wars when they're shifting from one king to another and one like, army general is rising up and murdering another general to become king. There's one general uh, in particular, his name's Zimri, and he goes and murders the king Elah, the king of Israel, and Zimri manages to rule for a grand total of one week because the rest of the army hears about what he's done and decides to march up to Jerusalem and depose Zimri. And when Zimri realizes that the whole army is against him, he decides, you know what, forget this, and he just sets the palace around him on fire, burns it down over his own head, and dies that way. That's the sort of enemy that we're facing right now and that we need to stand firm against. But remember who Jesus is. Remember the king who's coming back to us. One of my favorite parables about the return of Christ is Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says that everyone who's his servant is like a servant watching over his house while he's away, while he's out conducting his business. We're keeping the house in order, and we're staying awake, and we're waiting for him to come and knock on the door so we can open and welcome him in. But what kind of a king, what kind of a master is it that when he returns to the house and we let him in, what does he do? What would a normal master do? They'd collapse on their bed, they'd order some food, they'd watch whatever they had on the DVR. But what Jesus says he'll do is he'll tie a towel around his own waist and stoop down and serve us. 
That's the kind of master we're waiting for. That's the kind of master we're standing firm to welcome. The reason why Jesus is the ultimate political hope of the world is because in him we see like the antithesis of Machiavelli. Like, you know, Machiavelli, the guy who says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Jesus is the one who has already showed us in his life that he can handle the power and that he can be trusted to use it for the good of the people who serve him because he serves them. So just to recap, remember your home country where Jesus is. Let your heart kind of be filled with that ache and that longing for your true home. It's a real place. And in the meantime, endure in exile. Remember Christ, who is your real king, your soon-incoming king. Right now, he is in heaven, enthroned with all power, all authority, but we don't yet see all things subjected to him. He longs to return to gather his church, and when he does, he will continue to show us the meaning of real executive power when he celebrates us and welcomes us into his wedding feast. And then finally, stand firm. In Christ, all of us hold the high ground. It does not matter what political order looks like around us. Your tribe, your polituma, your citizenship, your political organization, all of that is so firmly rooted in heaven that anything that happens on the earth cannot shake it, cannot unmake it. And don't abandon your post, therefore. <laughs> if, you, if you feel like you're standing up at the top of a hill with enemies charging at you again and again and again and wave after wave after wave, remember that in Christ you are undefeated and undefeatable. But I'd urge you to remember the warning of the early church here. Remember Constantine, the guy I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. I think if Constantine had really understood what it meant to conquer by the cross, he wouldn't have seen it as, in, he wouldn't have seen it as a call to like trash his enemies by painting a cross on the shields of his soldiers and then willing, winning a military victory. He would have seen it as a call to embrace personal weakness and suffering, to wait faithfully for a savior, and to do everything in his power to serve the people around him. Because this is what happens after Constantine dies. You're right back where you were before him. There's another bloody succession struggle. Generals are fighting left and right to, to claim the throne. And you know, eventually it all settles down. But then one generation after Constantine, in the year 361, another emperor ascends to the throne. His name is Julian. 30 years after Constantine, and now he's grappling with this question. What went wrong? Why did we fall back into just another bloody civil war? And this is his conclusion. It's because Rome abandoned its traditional gods. And so what does he do? He becomes Julian, the quote, apostate. He rejects Christianity and dedicates his reign to reinstating Rome's traditional pagan worship. It's so tempting to try and make the kingdom of the world the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But if there's anything that Rome can teach us, it's that even our best efforts to enshrine Christ as Lord politically, as well as where he sits right now in heaven enthroned with all power, is that's kind of like Jesus saying, don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Because otherwise, the good of the church is just going to get spilled on the ground. The political order that you're trying to pour it into isn't strong enough to hold me anyway. Both are lost. Can I have all you stand, please? If you're a Christian like me, you naturally long to see the kingdom of heaven come in power. We pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. 
And I empathize deeply with the confusion of the disciples who wanted to see the kingdom in their own day. I think about those verses in the very first chapter of Acts where Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, where he is going to be enthroned, and the disciples come to him, and what's their question? Lord, are you finally restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? And he says, you are trying to peer into a mystery that you are not ready for. Jesus says of himself that not even he in his humanity knows the day or the hour that he will return for the kingdom insofar as he is a human being. And that means that if we're really going to be like Jesus, we need to live comfortably in that mystery, not knowing. But we also, like Paul, need to wait patiently, faithfully, obediently for our true king and for our true country. And so to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, glory, honor, and power forever. Amen.